it wasn't a flower bunch you take home, it's a bonsai tree. I think there is some degree of which work from home has allowed people to look around and ask themselves the question about what's really important right now. How much of that is because of competition, not having anything to do with pandemic? From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast with Doug Garnett again. Shaheen Khan here. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. I hear you've got a cold today. I do, yes. Speaking of colds and the pandemic, it looks like it's starting to maybe be behind us. I don't know, because there's another wave of it that's sweeping, but life seems to have got back to normal, and there is an impact on everything that happened during it. Yeah, I was struck when the pandemic hit with how many people touted their tremendous pandemic numbers, especially in online sales, because people had to buy online. They closed the stores. What else are you going to do? So we all got trained to buy online. And at the time, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of people saying, well, this is there forever. It's a change. You know, pandemics change everything. And this is going to be one of those changes. Well, now we have the latest census department numbers. And it turns out there clearly was a change right in the beginning but that most of that change has gone away and that the retail numbers for online sales are returning to the curve where you would have expected them to be at this point in time had the pandemic not happened. So what you see is a big bump right when the pandemic happens, and then it kind of drops and sits for a bit, and then it comes back down to where the curve would be. I think that's interesting because there were these companies, I mean, Nike, made a lot of big pronouncements about all the things they were going to do for online sales. And Peloton, of course, is in financial disaster now because they did so well during the pandemic, but they weren't able to anticipate its end. And Amazon's had a couple of slow quarters. And then most interesting recently was Netflix. It missed some subscriber numbers really badly, new subscriber numbers. But uh, the reason seems to be that all the people that signed up because of the pandemic, you know, have unsigned up and all kinds of things you would expect. So a couple of questions here. One is that, don't you think that the digital channel, nevertheless, has now been fully enabled in a credible way? That prior to the pandemic, there were a bunch of people who wouldn't even attempt it because they didn't know whether it's going to work, how it's going to work. But now everybody's comfortable getting on a video conference call. Everybody's getting a little bit more comfortable ordering delivery, whether it's food or this or that. So I feel like that enablement got accelerated in a way that might have taken longer. Yeah, I mean, it got accelerated. But you know what what you worry about is whether it actually enabled it or whether it just let a lot of people test and decide whether they would want to stick with it. You know, because I think at my household, we ordered food once and decided we'd never do that again. You know, it arrives cold. I can go to the restaurant and pick it up myself. You know, it's not that hard. We ordered groceries and quite a few times I went and picked them up. But, you know, I hate having the guy come out and say, oh, by the way, we're out of Caesar dressing. Would you take Thousand Island instead? And the answer is uh, no. Hell no. No offense to Thousand Island. (laughs) Yeah, no offense to Thousand Island. It's just not our thing when we want Caesar. You know, I'm thinking Caesar. I want Caesar. So I think there's kind of a, 
I don't know what to say. There's a you know a degree to which a lot of people tested it, to, you know, put a toe in the water, and some people are going to expand it. What's interesting with the numbers that came out of census is they're not back down to pre-pandemic levels. What they've come back to is the curve that sales growth was on anyway for online. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it was about a 11% penetration of U.S. sales were online. It's like about 12.75%. So they got a push. It went from 11 to 16 and then back to maybe 12 and three quarters. Right. So you got a nice big bump, but then it kind of came back to a growth. But let's not ignore the elephant in the room with those, which uh, when I work with my students is you get this double take from them about, you mean online's only 12.5% of U.S. sales? Right. And the answer is, yeah. Reading the headlines, you'd think that Amazon owns 95% of U.S. retail. And it's not true. If Amazon is half of that number, then Amazon's at 6%, which is huge. But let's not exaggerate where it is. And, you know, everything I saw in my retail work is it's really not unusual for five to 10% of people to buy online and the other 90 to 95% to want to go to the store because we like stores. We're physical people. Another question I had about folks whose businesses have dropped is how much of that is because of competition, not having anything to do with pandemic? Like maybe your product isn't any good and now you have a lot more competition because everybody hurried up and dialed up their digital channel, et cetera. I think there's some of that. I'm doubting if that's tremendously impactful online because I think before the pandemic, a lot of the online channels, at least the major ones, you know, Wayfair versus Amazon versus Walmart and the like, yeah, they're kind of static in some ways. You get little bumps and moves around and people put out new efforts. But I don't see that making a huge shift in any fast way. It could have been, you know, maybe what Nike's doing does make a difference in the long run. For Nike, then you know they're working on selling more directly and making big claims about how much they've achieved with it. I'm a skeptic, but that doesn't mean they can't have done it. Yeah, I just think there are more options now. If you think about Netflix, some of its competitors have dialed things up in a nice way. Apple and HBO Max, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then if you are in a grocery delivery, there are now two or three options rather than just one. Yeah. Or meal kit delivery that Mm -hmm. has three or four different options. So I wonder if that's the reason. I don't think so. You know, Netflix has a major competitive challenge in front of it. But at the same time, I, you know, a lot of times I look at these things and think, well, wait a minute, if it's just the natural move of the market, let's not exaggerate it. So I think that they pretty much just came back to where they would have been without the pandemic. But that doesn't mean from here it's easy. It means Netflix is left with all their fundamental competitive challenges. Right. I think you almost have to take each one one by one. Well, part of the challenge is because they found a really nice market and everybody wants in. So yeah. great job. <laughs> you pointed the way. You know. <laughs> well, they're big companies. They're investing a lot of money on breaking in. You know. Right. Yeah, because I want some now. Same thing with video conferencing. It was like Zoom, but now... Teams and Google and others have made it better than it was before. So it's starting to be a decent alternative. If we take them one by one, you look at video conferencing. I taught this week one of my classes I've been teaching live. And I taught one of my classes for two hours on Zoom because they were going to take a test online. So rather than have them take the test online in the classroom, which seemed kind of silly, I, you know, what was really interesting to me is we all hated it. 
every one of us. I don't like it. They don't like it in general from what I hear. What I've heard from students is their primary advantage was those who lived pretty far out of town loved it because they didn't have to fight all the commutes. And I, I get it. I thoroughly understand that. But as far as an engaging class where you are challenged and learn something, and really dig into the material, I think it's really hard on Zoom. So, I mean, this is back to your question about, well, they kicked the tire, are they going to adopt them? Have we habituated people would be the term we used with cell phones. Are people habituated to using these digital channels more? I think it depends on their experience. So I'm sure a lot of companies found there were great things that could get done by Zoom. Um, I know my brother who travels across the country doing depositions and stuff in the legal business. I think he kind of loves deposition by Zoom because he doesn't have to be on an airplane all the time. But I think that there are other times that it's not perfect. You know, related to this, I was reading a survey of some large number of respondents about the work from home versus work from work. And that reminds me of a joke one of my colleagues was saying in the old days, this is even before pandemic, when people would dial in and say, this is so-and-so, I'm working from home today. And he would dial in and say, I'm working from work today. (laughs) (laughs) And it was really cute. But there was a great correlation to the age of the respondent that the younger folks were a lot more comfortable working from home and they saw a lot of benefits in it. And the older you got, the less of the benefit you saw. Now, even boomers got something like 49% saw benefits and were leaning that way. So there was great bias in that direction. But it was nevertheless interesting that maybe this is also a question of age and what you consider easier. It could be. And that may really be what it, you know, where it shakes out. Hmm. I'm always fascinated with the work from home because I think that many of the benefits of working from home aren't about working from home, but they're benefits of not working from the office. Um, well, commute. Be, you know, <laughs> well, I think because the reality is that offices have become kind of hostile places for people or uncomfortable places for people because we've got spyware, we've got bosses looking over our shoulder, evaluating us minute by minute, wondering if we're making good use of our time and that kind of stuff. And I think there is some degree of which work from home has allowed people to look around and ask themselves the question about what's really important right now. And then worked accordingly to what's really important right now, instead of having to spend all their time at the desk going, what would my boss do? Well, this is all very relevant to all the marketing analysis that we do about the demographics and buying behavior and and how things are going to change. So actually, can I jump in and ask you a question about the younger? Here would be the place I might offer skepticism. And it's not because I know, it's just because I'm asking the question, which is, is it possible that the boomers know the downside of not being around for the politics or, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, there are values to being in the office. Oh, I have no doubt. They understand those values better. And in fact, the younger ones also treat that differently. They choose to engage or not engage even in the politics in different ways. Yeah. And case in point is that they are a lot more transparent. They're more comfortable sharing personal info. They don't really care. I remember in the old days when we were in college, say, oh, someday you may want to, you know, be selected as a Supreme Court judge and what you're doing is going to get in the way. You know, the younger guys don't seem to care as much. So the question is, though, is that still about age in a sense that, you know, when you're 25, (laughs) what do you have to lose? When you're 45, you have a lot more to lose. I mean, if you lose that job at age 45, you're pretty well screwed these days. Right, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but I'm not sure. 
I'm just trying to call it out because I think there's really interesting questions. So related to this in some ways was the discussion you and I had about business to business versus business to consumer. Yeah. And we both have done B2B. You've then went on to spend the majority of your career on B2C and really understand that market in a big way. And I've ended up staying in B2B. So let's compare some notes. Yeah. Well, to start it off, I wanted to offer just two observations. One being that they're a particular struggle for everybody in marketing because they use all the same tools. We use all the same tools. Do you advertise or not? As you put it out, you've got a product, you've got a price, you know, all those. So we're working with the same tools and yet it's enough different that they feel awkwardly similar yet uncomfortably different. That's tricky. I think the other reason I wanted to bring it up is the discussions I mostly have seen have tended to claim that there's a formula. You know, mm. Here's the formula for B2B. Wait a minute. Does any marketing really have a formula that is universal? No, it doesn't. Yeah. So there is no B2B formula. So I think it's useful to dig into it and kind of wonder, well, what, what's really going on underneath? Right. The most important thing I would say about this is the dollar value. Because I think one can say that in B2B, typically the dollar value is higher and sometimes substantially higher. Now, it's true that individuals go and buy big ticket items. If you're famous, your big ticket item could be a whole company like we've seen recently. But a big company is buying pencils. They're not going to go buy one packet. They're going to want an ongoing relationship and they're going to want this, that, and the other. So I think the dollar value leads to the length of the sales cycle. And if it becomes substantial, then it leads to the buying behavior. What you said there, you know, I'll note that it tends to lead to a relationship more often. I mean, I go buy a car. I've never found a value in building a relationship with a car salesman that I'd go back to because they're never at the dealership again when I finally am ready to go buy another car. Right. And that's as a consumer. But on the other hand, if you're buying cars at a corporation, you're buying fleets and you get to know the fleet people and the fleet people have a relationship. So I think relationship is more, it's different. It's not there isn't a relationship. It's just a different relationship. Mm -hmm. The other thing along those lines is the buying behavior, as I was saying, is that sometimes in B2B, you're selling to a committee, not to an individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now it's true that even in B2C, sometimes you're selling to a committee if you're selling a house, for example, Yeah. even if you're selling a car. I lectured this week on household decision-making you know, which is uh, (laughs) the committee from hell, Um, you know, because the the kid sees the ad, says, I want an Xbox and mom and dad have to research it. And then there's a group decision and then who buys it and who uses it. You got a lot to consider, but it's not formal in the way that it is in a company. I will say, here's another thought I've always had about B2B, which is very often when you're selling in B2B, there's somebody at the company whose job it is to watch out for products like yours. You know, if it's computers, there's somebody or some group that's watching what's out in computer technology. If it's pencils, there's somebody who's bringing supplies in. If it's copiers, there's people that are responsible for those things. One of the things that it does is it changes advertising, I think, tremendously. It does. Because for yeah. the consumer, your first thing is you kind of have to get their attention. Hey, pay attention to me. Now, in a company, you can presume they have reason to pay attention. Doesn't mean it goes away, but it just it changes that dynamic in subtle ways. But I think they're pretty big in what we end up doing. Well, along those lines is when B two B becomes a competitive formal bid with a request for a proposal 
or a request for information, or if you're selling to the government, and that's its own entire different things. What is the buying vehicle and who are the partners, etc. And then, like you also mentioned earlier, is the long-term commitment. Usually in B2B, there's an implication that the buyer is making a commitment for the long haul. I remember in the old days when we sold big computers, those were for the next 20 years, we're going to rely on you. Right, yes. So my joke was that it wasn't a flower bunch you take home, it's a bonsai tree. And we needed to rely, we were reliable, we needed to start up every time, we, you know, it was all that. You need the service, you need the roadmap. And this also relates to what you were saying is that it's more of an intellectual relationship than a transactional relationship. It's true, and yet there's still this emotional component. And I think that's one of the things that confuses people who work with B2B. I remember one of the sales back when we were selling computers we had that was determined on an emotional liking. We had to do everything else right. We had to do the bid correctly. We had to do all that. But we knew we had an advantage because the people liked us. Because you know they'd send some young guy out to uh, benchmark, and of the three of us that were competing, we were the only company that paid attention to him and treated him well. And they noticed Big stuff difference. like that. And so it was an emotional thing. So it's a little tricky because you can't say that those emotions don't go there. I think the other thing that's really tough for B2B is even though there may be a formal proposal process, you still have the informal influence network going on. So, you know, you're selling this engineer knows an engineer in another company that bought your competitor's project that either helps you or hurts you. And so you've got some kind of hidden networks you'll never know about. When I came into Floating Point, I was working with a guy who'd sold at CEC for years and years. He said, look, you got to figure there's three types of people you're going to run into. About a third of people are going to buy from you know how. They'll just buy. There's about a third of people are always going to buy from you. There's about a third of people that can, you know, lean into you. You can get them, can bring them in. But there's about a third of people who aren't, know how, no way. They may own stock through their sister and your competitor. They may have an uncle who founded the... I mean, you have no idea what the connections are out there. And you can't see them and you can't uncover them. And you just know that those kinds of accidents are going to be there. And you'll never get those. So you have to be okay with them. Yeah, absolutely. We used to joke about if you're trying to sell to someone who is playing golf with your competitor... And their mm-hmm. dads played golf together and they go back like 50 years. Yeah, it's going to be hard to crack that relationship. <laughs> you better have, have a product that. Yeah, I mean, if their product works at all, they're going to be mm-hmm. selected. Mm-hmm. So let's say you are a single individual and you have sufficient funds to go buy a multi billion dollar company. Is that B2C or is that B2B? <laughs> <laughs> Well, at that level, if you're an individual with that much money, here's my theory. It's B2C because you're selling (laughs) to the person. It's all about that person's self-perception. You know, I mean, what do I think I am? How's my culture going to perceive this? It may be sure they're going to go off and do due diligence, they'll call it, and uh, look at everything. But at some level, they're going to say, I just want to do this. And that does happen. In even big things like that. I think that you've got this weird thing that goes on between the two that I'll talk with my classes about how in B2B sales, there's an error, which is to believe it's all logical. And as we talked, it is emotional and it has instinct involved and all the traditional things about people buying um, are involved, even though they might buy as a team, but there's still all that stuff's there. In B2C, there's a tendency to figure that, well, everybody's emotional and they just buy on emotion, which I hate because that's so demeaning to the individual. 
Right. right? I mean, yeah. are we yeah. really just these emotional cesspools that, you know, <laughs> don't think and all that stuff? And the truth for both of them is somewhere in between. You sell heart and mind. And you have to always be selling and marketing and advertising and promoting heart and mind. That's a good setup for how to excel in social media and how do you appeal to emotion and to intellect. Mm -hmm. But let's put that for next time. That sounds good. Great. So thank you. Thank you all for listening. Again, it's a marketing podcast. So I'm going to have to ask you to go and like and share and do all the things that marketing people ask other people to do. And take care until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.